give some background information. The first two verses in Hebrews are magnificent verses. They're some of the finest in the whole Bible. So we'll begin with a discussion of background issues in the book of Hebrews. The Bible, uh, according to the New Testament, was written in Greek. The, the Greek of the book of Hebrews is the most advanced and fluent of any Hebrew written in the New Testament. And it's given rise to a lot of discussion about who wrote it. The uh, fact is we don't know who wrote it. They used to think that Paul wrote it, but there's a lot of differences in the book of Hebrews to any other epistle that Paul wrote. But generally, when Paul wrote an epistle, he would say the apostle Paul, but his name, which is not here. And so, um, the book of Hebrews is, as an unknown author, has anybody ever heard a discussion about who might have written Hebrews? Um, Apollos and Luther's idea. Barnabas? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people put the benefit forward. Yeah. We can't prove who wrote it or who didn't write it. There's no author. So, because of that, it was somewhat later in church history before it was accepted into the canon. Because generally they wanted things in the because of the canon to be written by apostles, but since we don't know who wrote Hebrews, it's not that easy to prove apostolic writing, but the quality of it is magnificent. Yeah, I agree with my professor, Dr. Brooks. I don't know if anybody else says this because it sounds a little subjective, but when you begin to read documents that were written in the first century or the intertestamental period or even in the ancient world, if you read anything that's not scripture, you immediately can see the difference in the quality. I, and with anything, the Shepherd of Hermas, for instance, some people thought out of the scripture. I've read it. it it's obvious that it isn't. Have you ever read Matthews? It's obvious that it's not a scripture. The quality isn't there. It's the, the way the language flows. There's something about how God inspired the scripture that it falls. It's just, uh, it's just different. Now, I know that's a little subjective, but it was interesting when I said that clap Dr. Brooks right away agreed. So I, I agree. And you can tell the difference is reading. But Hebrews uh, was quoted by Clement of Rome in 95 AD. So since Clement of Rome alluded to the book, obviously it was already in existence before 95 AD. AD. And most likely it was in existence before 70 AD. Does anybody know why we would say that? That the temple is still there. It's not a reference to the temple. Yeah. The reference to the sacrificial system in Hebrews that the author of Hebrews is warning them not to go back to. Now, given the arguments in the book of Hebrews, if in fact the temple had already been destroyed and the sacrifices stopped before Hebrews was written, it would make sense that the author of Hebrews would allude to that fact and bolster his Case. God already stopped all this. But since he is saying the priest's daily, daily ministers, and he alludes to the, the, or speaks about the sacrificial system, warning him not to go back to it, it's pretty clear it was still going on at the time of, of writing. So that pushes the writing back before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Now, 
Christians in or about Rome is the most likely destination. The time of writing that we can't necessarily prove, but I think most people believe that it was, uh, what did I have here about the Christians? I think generally believed to be somewhere around the early 60s, 60, 65 AD. Uh, I mentioned that the Hebrew in Hebrews is very, very magnificent. The Greek, excuse me, the Greek. The first two verses in particular, there are things in the, in the verses in Greek that cannot be, you can't re- replicate in English because of rhyme, meter, and there's, uh, what do you, alliteration, I think it was this week. When you start a bunch of words at the same beginning, there's alliteration. Well, the, the alliteration is lost in English. And a lot of the, just the cadence and the beauty of how the Greek flows in the first two verses cannot be translated in English. It's the concepts that even up the, that aspect of it. Yes. Because of the recipients were, of course, the, 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 name, the title was added by later scholars. Okay. It was not part of the text itself. The title is based on to whom it was written. And, and also the issues involved that are, that are warnings in Hebrews about apostasy. And the apostasy that's warned about is going back to Judaism. Going back to an inferior temple, inferior priesthood, inferior sacrificial system, and so on. That's the warnings in the book of Hebrews. There are five major warnings in Hebrews, and that's clearly the, the key issues of warnings against us. Uh, it can be called a sermon or a word of exhortation. It certainly, is a series of warnings that call people to faithfulness to Christ. So, I wrote an article on Hebrews 6, 1 through 6, I think, one time I published it. And the article concerned why there are warnings against apostasy if indeed the perseverance of the saints is a biblical doctrine. Remember, remember that article? Does anybody remember what I concluded? You don't have to agree with me. <laughs> You're free to disagree, as always. Greek with was Calvin Barnes. 
Peter Ryan and I preach from the subject of the Gospels, we've both been heavily influenced by his, his approach, which is this taking this text of what it says, following the narrative, and not reading things into it. Here's the verse of the thing I like what he said. He said, we've got to have the issue of whether you can lose your salvation or not. And here's what he said. Can you lose your salvation? Yes, you can. But God will like I can't possibly hypothesize. 
He says, what the elect read the passage, it scares the hellishness out of them. <laughs> and now we go, whoa, and I could be. I mean, if you're truly a Christian, you read that, you go, that could be me. Right? And then they go, take it in the right And 
this is about is the fact that there are these people who claim the ability to go in and discern your soul, to, to figure out what demons you have, to figure out what, and then they're going to fix your soul. So they soul doctors. And, and um, I think that part of the reason there is so much of this going on is that from what I know, I don't have any time to go anywhere but here, because it's possible to be here on Sunday morning, but I get letters and emails from all over the country and all over the world saying that the Word of God is being taken out of the pulpits. And that instead of the whole house of God, they're getting this ten steps to reduce stress in the workplace, and five ways to have a happy marriage, and two ways to be successful. And, and so what happens when you take the Word of God away from people, so many of the people are truly Christian, when you take away the means of grace, which is the whole counsel of God, and replace it with something else, then what happens? They don't grow. Amen. They don't gain victory. They, the changes aren't happening the way they should. They've got all the problems. So then, then you look out and say, oh, look, oh, people have all these problems. We better get a jeweler in here. We better get somebody in here. To, so they call for the Bob Larsons and the Neil Andersons or whoever uh, is going to come in and solve the problem. I call it the geese plot or something. You know, the computer guys go around with a little, a little uh, bug. The geese plot comes because your computer won't boot it up. And so I used an Elgin article that says this, these new guys are the geese plot for souls. But they're not going to work because, see, you can fix a computer because computers are created by man. And man can fix what man makes. But man can't fix what God creates. God makes souls. And only God can heal the soul. And so, I say that about the book of Hebrews, us sitting here and reading it and letting it into our heart and taking what it says seriously and admonishing one another. It says later in Hebrews 10 to provoke one another to love and good works. Through, through admonishing each other from the, from the Hebrews itself, that that will actually, in the process, change us. And people are looking for a crisis at the moment. They want, they want to go and get slain under the power or somebody cast a demon out of them or have a session where they come out and they immediately feel better. But they're not availing themselves to the day by day by day, which really will change you. Amen. You know, they experience that. I remember, uh, Les, anybody remember Les Boleyn from, yeah, I, they were just delightful. And Louise was the wife, right? Louise? Louise was, yeah. I started to stop on my way up north. The boys just had coffee with them because they just love to see people. And Louise was telling about this lady that had five kids and her husband was uh, not a Christian and running around to the bars and not coming home at night and had all these problems. And so, so Louise was helping this lady drink with her. So she said, why don't you take her to this full gospel meeting? Some day it's fancy meeting in town with the preacher in it for the ladies in the church. So she, take, she took this uh, lady to the meeting and said to the pre- preacher, well, she really needs help. She's got all kinds of problems. So they got her up there to pray for us. She fell on the floor. And they got, oh, praise God, hallelujah, you know, God's working. And so she got up off the floor and then went back to Louise's place afterwards and she goes, now what do I do about my five kids and my husband? <laughs> <laughs> you got an experience, but you don't have any, you know, 
see it over and over again. I promise you that it works. It's just that it's incremental and gradual. That's why the Bible continually applies to the patience of patience. How many times the Lord tell us to patience? You know, I mean, that's how the Lord works. Most often, you let him. So anyhow, Louise and Lynn said, well, I guess she had a point. That's why you have to power to beat your husband back in the car. <laughs> okay, uh, one more that we'll start. I had one more experience. Um, you know, go back to the Old Testament. The Hebrew people, when they came out of Egypt, there, there's, there's never such a great display of, um, of God as far as the plagues that they were finding good, as far as how they parted the Red Sea, as far as the manna, oh, yeah. down. but yet it did nothing for it. And then even more, when Christ came, and the things that the people experienced, that they saw, the feeding of the five of, of, of thousand twice, um, the, the, the raising of the people from the dead, the cures, uh, healing all these people, but yet it did nothing. That, that's not where salvation comes from, it's some experience. That's a good point. Nobody saw more miracles than said that the other said they died in unbelief. Okay, let's go to Hebrews. Let's open the the first two verses are absolutely magnificent. I'll tell you, uh, I've got a lot of notes on these two verses. But let's just read the first two. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. These two verses, I believe, are some of the strongest as far as the fact that the canon of Scripture is closed. What was that again? I believe that these, that these two verses prove the canon of Scripture is, is closed. Yeah. Full and final revelation. Because in the tenses, it says in Hebrews 1, 1, God after he spoke, and it's a participle in the Greek, and it says God having, having spoken, God having spoken. Um, and then it goes to the verse 2, where it says has spoken in the English. It's an heiress of finality in the Greek. And I looked at Lenski, A.T. Robertson, William Lane, um, and everybody, uh, all of the Greek scholars says that the construction here of the change of tense, where having spoken to spoke in the Son, is to, in, to impress the sense of finality and completeness. In fact, A.T. Robertson says, spoke in full and final revelation. Now, how God spoke through the Son? Well, Jesus Christ... God incarnate, and we have that in this, these two verses. Amazing how much is in these two verses. So he's the one who created the world, so we have his pre-existence, right? And uh, he spoke on the face of the earth before many witnesses, but Jesus never wrote anything down. He didn't write for him. You know? So this speaking through the mouth of Jesus is through the agency of the apostles. The, the, the apostles wrote the gospels. The apostles wrote the epistles. So this speaking to the eyewitnesses, and, and then the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that through which they wrote it down, is very very much like the Old Testament because God spoke in the prophets. He spoke through Moses. 
But um, these things were written down and preserved for all future generations that we might know what God said and how he spoke and what he did in the Old Testament Revelation. And now having spoken through the Son, what the Son said had been written for us once for all. Yes. First John 1, 1. Go ahead. This is the same. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and claimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and is manifested to us. And what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Exactly. The, the, the eyewitnesses were the apostles. That was 1 John 1, 1 and 2. One, the, the eyewitnesses of it were the apostles, and the Holy Spirit preserved their writings. The, the doctrine of inspiration says that God uses humans, but he does so in such a way that their writings are the very words of God. Amen. Using the human agency, using these people's own languages and skills, and there's differences. John writes in almost broken Greek, because it's his second language. The author of Hebrews writes in fluent Greek. And so, people wonder who was. That's why some people think of Paulus, because he was the orator that was uh, had a way with the Greek language. And so, who knows? Uh, I have a story. Um, I probably what we're talking about. I mean, it's kind of a lot of these things. Practically yesterday. And um, actually, on uh, Sunday, I had a couple long videos in my house. Last night, and I invited him to talk for a while and, and you know, pose some pretty significant questions. Don't they love you? And I said, You're going to come back on Saturday. She said, You're going to come back on Saturday. And I said, Sure, you can come back on Saturday. So yesterday, they came home and they were a little more well prepared. And they were, um, and they really started bringing up this, this whole issue of. Um, the patterns of uh, God always has a prophecy before him. He always has a prophecy before him. And they use this when it comes to Joseph Smith. Now, Joseph Smith is this, you know, new prophet. He always has a prophet in each age. So if you know anything about the LDS letter things, they always are having a, a link problem. Well, um, I, I brought this mystery of verse up to them. And I said, um, something really significant
God. Let's speak for God. Amen. Yeah, Bruce says the story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ, but there's no progression beyond yeah. Right? And so, yeah, there's progressive revelation in the sense that God spoke to the fathers, to the prophets in many portions, in many ways, and that this was bringing us up toward the time, they prophesied about the time of Messiah. But when Messiah comes, we are to listen to him with the voices from heaven. It's like all of a sudden. Everything looks back to Jesus. It doesn't look forward. Yeah, it doesn't say wait for somebody else to come. Right. Yeah. Um, how would you approach Islam with that? Well, it's very similar. We're Muhammad, the same. Oh, you know, and again, with, with Islam, you know, the whole, I mean, it's a whole different school of um, beliefs because Islam, it's really hard to have to come with Islam because you go back to scriptures of, they say, oh, you have to believe the scriptures, then you bring the first one and say, well, that, that part is corrupt. Because they really don't believe it. They believe it. God, after he spoke, having spoken, 
after he spoke love unto the fathers. So here, this is uh, affirming the inspiration of the Old Testament. This is not belittling the Old Testament or making it something less, but affirming that God did speak in, uh, through the prophets to the, to the fathers, the patriarchs. It was indeed God speaking. The scripture is inspired, including the Old Testament. Now the portions and ways there I, uh, are uh, probably having to do with quantity, portions, and ways, quality. That God, in various ways, did use even authors, different literary genre. You have narrative. You have the wisdom literature. You have the Proverbs. You have the writings of the prophets. So, using these people in their own um, style, in their own way, God oversees and works through these human agents and, and inspires the scripture. And that the scripture here is God speaking, not only to them, but to us. And so the portions and ways would give us an idea that God uses different means, but the quality is all such that it is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. So no doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture should ever ignore Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. In fact, if you look at a theological dictionary about inspiration, you'll always find these verses mentioned, because it's a very clear assertion of the inspiration of Scripture. God spoke. God spoke. And this is a very important issue, like Ryan was saying with the Mormons, and we should say today there's a lot of people out there claiming they spoke for God and speak for God. Okay? Um, best issue, is the Quran the Word of God or is the Bible? Is the Book of Mormon the Word of God or is the Bible? Are these current prophets who claim that they speak authoritatively for God, are they really doing so? We've, we've been using that in, in debating with people because it's amazing how they start backing down. Not too long ago, I was talking with the person who believes in Latter-day Prophets. And so here's how I said it. I said to this fellow, do you believe that a current prophet can come in here and say something that goes beyond what it says in the Scripture? In other words, it's not a clear implication from Scripture or a clear Scripture. And just say, whatever. Don't say it the Lord, bang, 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 bang. Am I sinning against God if I don't do what that guy says? And the person who believes in prophets says, well, no, I guess not. Well, see, you defuse the whole thing. Because they weren't willing to go so far as to put these guys on the even steel of Scripture. And so, therefore, what did Jesus say about those who came in his name? It's like saying, I am the anointed one, is what it said literally to be. He says, don't listen to them. So I said, okay, since they can't tell me anything authoritative from God, and it's not a sin to not listen to them, I'm not going to listen to them. Excuse me, I'm not going to listen to them. Bye-bye, promise. <laughs> Come to me and preach the gospel. I'll listen to that. I'm going to listen to this guy. Yes. Is it all from the people who say, you know, you don't have to listen to them, but you can have, you know, in your faith, if you listen to them, you will have a more fulfilling faith, and you'll have a you'll have more of a, uh, a deeper faith and you'll have all this, you know, it'll just become so much better than what you have. We need to tell, we need to tell you because there is more than Christ has found in the world. I don't believe there is. Right. So 
better life or something, you know, whether, whether it's a closer walk with God or whether it's prosperity, whether you know, all these things are going to happen, your kids won't be rebellious and your unsaved loved ones will all come around. And so they, they're, they're making promises that create sort of a fun. But again, you've got to plead to the gospel. What is the means that God uses? Is that so? So then, the bottom line is, is you can come back like you just said you did with the verse that says, Well, listen to me. Yeah. If they claim to be specially anointed, I don't listen to them because Jesus told me not to. All Christians are equally anointed, according to the New Testament. Uh, we heard a guy I thought was pretty good. We went to a, a fundraiser for Mark and Jamie Lee Johnson's ministry that we, we do the outreaches with out here. And there's this little group in a little basement of a little church, and um, this preacher from Alabama was up, an interesting guy. But he, he says, I'm going to prove to you from Scripture. He was saying, it is a sin for you to give your money to these TV evangelists that have jet airplanes. Oh, really? And so he went into Proverbs, and I, I, can't, I wish I would have wrote down the reference, I'll have to look it up. But he basically said, don't, don't try to get in good with the rich people by giving them things. And um, he says, these guys are, he tells stories about it to prove how simple it was. He said, I was in Mexico, there's a lady living down there by the garbage dump, dumps, ministering to the people living in the dumps. Because they have no home, so they go make cardboard out of the garbage dump and live there. You've probably seen pictures of that. And this lady's down there with nothing, ministering these people for years. He said, a famous TV preacher came in who was staying at the Hilton got into a helicopter that, on a, that had a helicopter pod on the top of the hill. And they flew the TV preacher out to the garbage dump. Big helicopter. He gets out, you know, like this, you know, for 15 minutes with a camera guy. And they showed him, they found the guy, uh, who ministry to these people in the garbage dump, back on the helicopter, flying back up, you know, never see him again. He's there for 15 minutes, got his video shoot. And then he puts that on TV to raise money for this guy going into the garbage dump. And the lady that was living there 12 months a year, that was penniless. And he says, all this money is going to this guy to ride his helicopter. He's not doing a thing. And if you give him money, you're sitting against God. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> he says, if you want to give the money, find out about that poor lady that lives down there and has nothing to help her out. You know, because she's just not on TV.
some of the health and wealth people sent missionaries down there, and they were preaching that if you give your money to God, everybody's going to get rich. They really didn't know the people were just, they didn't do anything. They were like, what? There's, there's nobody in the whole village had any money. They, they knew they probably never would. They wouldn't listen to those because they, their message didn't mean anything to them. So you're right. If it doesn't work everywhere, it's not the gospel. Um, I was just going to say, everything is centered around the gospel. The gospel is the message. Just as um, you're putting forth, um, even Paul says, we, we, we need glories and nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So all our glory, all our satisfaction, all our peace comes from the, the glad tidings. It's just that the word is given. That, that is our peace. It is. Correct. But even the gospel is not accepted universally. No. You're saying that it's, it's not, it seems to be what you're saying is it's what you're presenting isn't accepted world round? No, applicable. Not, it doesn't matter whether they accept it or they don't accept it. It's that you, you couldn't even... Here's the people who don't even have a slice of bread. You tell them to give all their money to God. They don't have any money anyhow. So if giving money to God is why you're going to get free. Well, you don't have any money. You can't get free. But the gospel is free. All right? So, yeah, it's still rejected. But you don't need it. Everybody needs it. Yeah, you know, but that's that's another one. It's easy how these seminaries... When I was in seminary, you get some of these classes are going astray. And I say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to be secret sensitive, you have to learn how to do these things. And, and otherwise people won't want to come to your church. And No, here's what they said. You're not relevant. I was told that. You're not relevant. And so finally I got here and I said, listen, do you people not believe that everybody is going to hell unless they find a Savior? And that everybody's a sinner? And that everybody's lost? And what I'm saying is that the only way for sin to be removed is through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the blood of Torah and through the cross. You tell me how that's irrelevant to anybody on the face of the earth. What, how in the world is escaping hell irrelevant? <laughs> and, and, and you know what they just did? No, I was shy. These poor teachers, they went on the bank and had to get shocked. This would do it. I can't teach this class. You keep doing this. I blow off this whole thing he's trying to present because I disagree with it. I said, but what they're trying to say is that, well, yeah, the, theologically we know that the gospel is relevant to them, but they don't like. They don't want to hear it. They don't feel like it's relevant. What, what's relevant to them is what comfortable seating, lots of parking. Confess the gospel. They confess something else. The things of this world say. Yeah, and so. So then, so then the argument goes back one more stage. Is, okay, so then we're saying that rather than looking in God's Word to see what God says is relevant, we look to the sinner to let them tell us what they think is relevant. Well, something like that. They don't like how I say it, but that's really what was being said. So I don't, I don't think that this message is going to be irrelevant to anybody. All right? Because if, you're, if your loss is relevant in the sense that it tells you the way of escape from your lost condition, if you're saved, it's relevant because you'll rejoice to hear it. What kind of Christian doesn't rejoice to hear the truth about Jesus Christ? Amen. There's some hardness of heart that we don't care. Uh, let's get some cross-references here. Um, Jim Bukowski, could you read 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12? 
and then Diane, Luke 24, 44 to 48. This is about verse 1, that, that God spoke to the fathers, and then the idea that we have something even more because of the Son. It's not the king that spoke in the last days. One Peter 1, chapter 12, then Luke 24, 44 to 48. As for this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you who made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he preached the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Wow. Things into which angels long to look. <laughs> Awesome. So it's saying there that even the inspired writers of Scripture that were prophesying in the ancient days through the Holy Spirit longed to see more. <laughs> they were they, they they were looking forward to messianic salvation, but they weren't sure of the time or the day. Remember Daniel said that he didn't understand some of the things that he wrote now? Because until it was fulfilled in the new, there's there's it's just looking forward. And it's, it's wonderful. They're sitting there salvation with this, but yet there's my faith like it is now. This is the, the gospel sent from heaven came to us. Things which angels desire to look into. Can you imagine to have such a sacred privilege as being recipients of something that the prophets prophesied about and they themselves didn't see in the same folds that we do? That we've got a greater revelation than the greatest prophets in the Bible through the gospel. And to have all that and then to find the box gospel irrelevant or not worth preaching. It's, what, a, what a travesty. What a travesty. What do we got focus for if we're not to preach the gospel? Um, I preached a message about a year and a half ago, um, and I think it was an article about, about um, this same content that we're talking about first Peter. Uh, here it is. Remember when um, Jesus was telling about John the Baptist? Jerusalem. 
you are witness to these things. Well, there's also God. The, the Old Testament scriptures, which he had just explained to them on the Lord of Emmaus, were written about him. And that now in the, in the history, these things were fulfilled. And that they are commissioned, that's the great commission, by the way, in Luke. It says that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached to all nations. So that, that's important. I believe repentance needs to be preached with the gospel. The gospel calls for repent and believe. Well, I think 